cats and kittens. I'm just kidding. I had to say it though. <laughs> um, welcome back to IT Starts Together. So our last episode, we were talking about um, CompTIA 1001. Um, tonight, we're going to be doing a little bit, uh, something totally different. Um, so I'm in Security Plus right now, and I um, am working on that currently. So I'm just going to St start studying that and going through some of that material with you guys. Um, if you guys don't know, this show is about just a way to study. This is how I study. Everything that we talk about in this episode will be posted to our iTunes, um, and you can follow us there as well. Um, I've had a couple of rocky episodes. Um, this material is really tough to keep up with, but um, this is my way of studying, and I hope it helps you guys. Um, been pretty bogged down with the whole pandemic thing. It's been just crazy. So hope you guys are keeping your spirits up. Uh, it means a lot to continue um, self-betterment. And so it is about 9.44 here. So I'm just going to finish wrapping up and get everything together. And we'll go ahead and start at 9.55. Well, let's do 9.50. I'll give everybody a chance to hop on. Okay, so we're getting there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you lost him, or you're singing like a stone. Carry on. All right, Alexa, off. Alexa, off. Okay, guys. So here's a couple of things. So what is Security Plus? So CompTIA it has a class called Security Plus. The CompTIA Security Plus, the global certification that validates the baseline skills you need to perform core security functions and pursue an IT secure security career. But why is it different, you might ask? So with this particular certification, there's no other certification that accesses baseline cybersecurity skills that has performance-based questions on the exam. So we have a lot of PBQs. <laughs> Um, the Security Plus emphasizes hands-on practical skills, so it ensures the security professional is better prepared to problem-solve a wider variety of issues. More to Security Plus for DOD 8570 compliance than any other certification. So about the exam, uh, so I, I didn't really mention it, but I have taken, let me tell you what I've done so far. So I'm a student leader quest. I've taken CompTIA 1001, 1002, um, network Plus, Security Plus, Certified Network Defender, and Certified Ethical Hacker. I actually took my Certified Ethical Hacker test last week. Um, it's 125-question test. Ooh, it was a lot. <laughs> um, if you guys have any questions about that, feel free to leave your comments under um, our iTunes page or what have you, whatever works. 
So the CompTIA Security Plus is the first security certification for IT professionals that they should earn. It establishes the core knowledge required of any cybersecurity role and provides a springboard to intermediate level cybersecurity jobs. So the test itself says that you need to meet a directive of 8140 out of 8570 is the minimum requirements. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, great. Let's go just right into here. Oh, Lord. Okay, so I'm using the CompTIA Cert Master for Security Plus. And this is what I'm working with. So CompTIA Security Plus is a certification globally trusted to validate foundational and vendor neutral IT security knowledge and skills. As a benchmark for best practices in IT security, this certification covers the essential principles for network security and risk management. Oh, I also took ITIL for foundations. So <laughs> forgot to add that in there. If you get a chance to take that, it's wonderful. Definitely, definitely recommend it. Okay. So yeah, just had a little, whoop, I did that. Okay, so as I discussed um, on the last episode, CompTIA has a learning platform that is amazing. And it's really nice because they have like, uh, it once you download the materials or if you go to an institution that provides the materials for you, um, on the CompTIA, uh, uh, CompTIA learning platform, there is um, learning the learning plan you can click on, your strengths and weaknesses. You can also click on lessons. You've got a couple of performance-based questions. You also have the practice underneath there. You have the assessments, the flashcards, the game center, and the resources. Now, we've already talked about card picker and card coupler. <laughs> we already know that those are not my favorite, but do they work? Of course they work. They're great. But I also like to add in that there is a lot of ways to study and everybody learns differently. Some people can sit in class in an eight hour class and, you know, listen to someone talk and understand every single bit of it. Or some can sit in class and feel extremely overwhelmed and lost. Um, I'm the type that I have to build and I have to, if I don't understand it, I have to learn it right then and there before I can move on, especially since all of this stuff is kind of intertwined. So one of the things that I like to do is I like to take time with the material and really understand and get to know it. The best way I can tell you to do that. So this is what I believe. And this is this has shown me a lot of success is there is a website. So if you open up your tab, you got comptiaexam.com. Thank you. Here, come on up. That's not the right one. CompTIAexam.com. Maybe it's CompTIAtest.com. There you are. CompTIAexamtest.com. So when you open up this website, you're going to see a, like a mint green top going across. And this is really the closest that I've found to the test. Uh, it's very good. And it also has your CompTIA IT fundamentals. Um, it has your CompTIA A+. These questions are the ones that I've seen on the test. So this is the best way to study. Um, I've studied the CompTIA A+, on here. Um, which is your 220, 1001, and 1002. I've also studied your CompTIA Network Plus, which was pretty accurate. It gives you a platform of like 483 questions. Um, you can study live for free or you can buy a PDF for $8.99. Um, you can do CompTIA Advanced Security Practitioner. That's your CASP Plus. You got Cybersecurity Analyst Plus. That's your CYSI. 
SA. You got your pen test plus and your cloud essentials. So I'm just going to go right here and study live free for the security plus. And I believe I'm in the 501. Yes. So we are right now discussing the security plus exam SYO 501. And I do have an instructor led class. So I do go to class all day. <laughs> and I also, in case you cool cats and kittens didn't know, I am a hacker on Hack the Box. So make sure to follow me. My name is Billy Ray. And I'm part of the pandemic team. So if you guys would like to hack the box or find out more about that or learn how to do that, um, send me a message and I'll try to help you best I can. We do work out of a virtual box. Uh, so if you have a virtual machine um, or if you need help learning about them, uh, I can do my best to teach you. The more I explain it, the better I know it. So the more you do, the more you know, the more you do. Okay. <laughs> okay. So wait one second. I have given out the wrong link. I'm getting a message. You gave us the wrong link. I'm sorry. I've had so much coffee, guys. Oh, my goodness. Shuffling songs We're just going to listen to Taylor Swift while I resend out this link. Oh. Maybe I should do, like, Skrillex. So I have the right link now. Sorry, I was getting a bunch of weird messages about you have the wrong link out. Let me fix that. There you go. Okay. So like I was saying, if you need any help with those things, just let me know. Um, the more I do it, the more I know. So like I said, we're at the CompTIAexamtest.com. We're talking about CompTIA Security Plus, the 501. There's 729 questions and answers here, so we're just going to start going through them. Um, another great way to study is to bring up the lesson CompTIA platform for the one that CompTIA gives you and you can just scroll through you can rate your confidence on some of the materials you can go through the lessons you can do the assessments which are awesome before you test you should probably do the assessments um and yeah so that's pretty much just what i've been doing oh, i'm sorry hang on there's jeffers hi jeffers <laughs> I sent out the wrong link. Ooh, okay. Alrighty. So then we have 
our first question. So comptaexamtest.com. So I'm just going to click the study live. <clears throat> so many questions. You have to turn off your ad blocker for some reason. It just won't let it. Okay, let me access it. Come on. Woohoo. Never mind. Hang on one second. Don't run on this page. Please don't give me a virus. Okie dokie. So, question one is going to be oh, Jesus. Hang on, we got another ad blocker. Okay, hang on, here we go. So a security administrator wants to implement strong security on the, com on the company's smartphones and terminal servers located in the data center, drag and drop the applicable controls to each asset types. So that's more of like a visual. There's a lot of performance-based questions as we were talking about before. Um, so some of the options are like screen lock, strong password, device encryption, remote wipe, GPS tracking, pop-up blocker, cable logs, your antivirus, host-based firewall, proximity reader, sniffer, and man trap. Um, so for the company managed smartphone and, and the data center terminal server, <laughs> what is, what are you talking about? I don't. <laughs> okay, well, feel free to talk anytime you want. Um, what is? I forgot what MDMA is. Hang on. Did we learn that today? I can't even remember. It all seems like a blur. That should work. Hang on. I, I don't know what I did wrong. I sent off the wrong link. It's so sad. Okay, so I would just look at that one yourself and drag drag it to where it needs to be. It's kind of hard to describe um, which ones you would drag over for that one since it's a performance-based question. So I'm just gonna continue on. Hotspot, you could, this is also a performance-based question. So it's gonna select the appropriate attack from each drop-down list to label the corresponding illustrated attack. Instructions, attacks may only be used once and will disappear from drop-down list if selected. When you have completed the simulation, please select the done button to submit. So instructions, um, it's giving you an attack vector target, another performance-based question here. It looks like it wants you to set up a security, you know, just using spam phishing, whaling or hoax, farming, spear phishing, spoofing, spam, and Xmas attack. Um, it's really hard to describe this type of questions over the verbal mobile device management. Yes, it does. Rights error? I don't know what that means. Okay, I don't know, Jeffrey. I don't know how to do it. Get, please enter your co-host. No, I don't know how to fix it. Okay, there you go. Hopefully that works. And so question four, hopefully it's not, there we go. Which of the following would, would a security specialist be able to determine upon examination of a server certificate? You got A, CA public key, B, server private key, C, CSR, DOID. So 
let's think about that. What, uh, which of the following would a security specialist be able to determine upon examination of a server certificate? <laughs> oh, okay. Here, just um, just add yourself. Sorry, guys. Hold on. Add yourself to the Podbean. It goes. I have to talk when I when I type. <laughs> I don't know how else to share it. I can't see it. Yeah, I don't know how else to share it. Wait, share? Ooh, I got it. Never mind. No, no, come back. There you go. Copy. Here it is. Paste. There you go. Okay, maybe that one. Yeah? Okay. There you go. Okay, so just going forward. So let's talk about the server certificate. So server certificate, I'm gonna go back to the lesson and just kind of refer back to, um, I'm just gonna control F server certificate. Okay, so we got certificate. There's lesson five is implementing a public key infrastructure. So it starts with um, implement certificates and certificate authorities, public and private key usage, digital certificates. Our questions asking us about server certificates. So let's just go and I have so many browsers. Open. So we got SSL web and server certificates. So a server certificate guarantees the identity of an e-commerce site or any sort of website to which users submit data that should be kept confidential. One of the problems with SSL is that anyone can set up a PKI solution. It is also simple to register convincing sounding domain names such as mybankserver.com, where the real domain is mybank.com. If you choose to trust a certificate in the naive belief that simply having a certificate makes the site trustworthy, they could expose themselves to fraud. There have also been cases of disreputable sites obtaining certificates from third-party CAs that are automatically trusted by browsers that apparently validate their identities as financial institutions. So our question is, which of the following would a security specialist be able to determine upon examination of a server certificate? I'm going to say an OID. So let's see if that's right. It is an OID. Yay. So an OID, I just felt like it was an OID because I just heard it, but I don't exactly know why. Hang on. <laughs> I don't know why it's not working, but okay. OI. No worries. Okay, I'm not even messing with that anymore. Okay, so it is an OID. So moving on to the next question, and we're gonna have a security analyst is diagnosing an incident in which a system was compromised from an external IP address. The socket identified on the firewall was traced to 207.46.130.0. Uh, colon 66666, which of the following should the security analyst do to determine if the compromised system still has an active connection? So I would do like NS lookup. 
Um, but that's not right. I'm, I think, I really think the options are TraceCert, NetStat, Ping, or NSLOOKUP. I think it's NetStat because I remember my teacher, he just was harping on that a lot. So let's give it a go. <laughs> harping on that a lot. Oh, <laughs> yes, it was NetStat. Thank you. <laughs> Um, multiple organizations operating in the same vertical want to provide seamless wireless access for their employees as they visit the other organizations. Which of the following should be implemented if all the organizations use the native 802.1x client on their mobile devices? So A is Shibboleth, B is Radius Federation, C is SAML, D is OAuth, and E is OpenID Connect. So I believe, I don't know what the first one is at all. That doesn't even sound right. Um, D doesn't sound right at all. And OpenID Connect doesn't sound right either. So the only one that I've actually seen is Radius Federation. Um, so I'm gonna try that one, B, Radius Federation. Am I right? Cool. Hold on one. Okay, sorry about that. I had to go and grab some water. This public speaking thing's not really for me. I get super, I get super stage fright. So which of the following best describes an important security advantage yielded by implementing vendor diversity? It's gonna be sustainability, homogeneity, resiliency, configurability. I think it's gonna be resiliency. There we go. She can be taught, there we go. In a corporation where compute utilization spikes several times a year. The chief information officer, the CIO, has requested a cost-effective architecture to handle the variable capacity demand. Which of the following characteristics best describe what the CIO has requested? Elasticity, scalability, high, avail high availability, or redundancy? Oh, I think I know this one. I hope I do. Oh, I was like, elasticity. So, okay, so what is elasticity, right? Okay, so I will tell you. Elasticity is de defined as the degree to which the system is like able to like kind of like adapt to the workload changes. So it provisions a deep deprovisioning can is that a word is that the word? Is that the right word? Resources and it's um it's kind of like autonomic. Uh, that's usually the manner that it conducts itself. So it's like each point in the in time is the available resources match. And it's the current demand as closely as possible. So I know that's a lot of words, but just 
it just makes sense. So that's the one we got. Cloud elasticity. Stop, you know the answers, go away. <laughs> scale up and down, scale up and down. That's probably the easiest way to explain it. That is the easiest way to explain it. <clears throat> so, a security engineer is configuring a system that requires the X.509 certificate information to be post pasted into a form filled in base 64 encoded format. So if guys, if you don't know what base 64 encoded format is, go ahead and open up a tab and just type in base 64. It should bring up a decode and encode and it's like base 64 decode.org. Um, you can have fun with that. Also, if you're on hack the box, this is kind of, one of the tools that you'll use to get past the front page, or at least I did. There's audio effects. Uh -oh. oh. Okay. Okay. You're welcome. You're welcome. I will be here all night. Hi. <laughs> this is, there's little sounds. This is so awesome. Okay. It's the little things. It's the little things. Okay, so let me just get some water here. Okay, so a security engineer is configuring a system that requires the X.509 certificate. And the information is to be pasted into a form filled in base 64 encoded format. So to import it to import it into the system, which of the following certificate formats should the engineer use to obtain the information in the required format? Should you use A, PFX, B, P-E-M, C-D-E-R, or D-C-E-R. Yeah, I like the way they did that. <laughs> so I'm going to be really honest right now. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just going to show the answer. And it says P-E-M. So now I'm going to go back into the book and find out exactly what in the heck that means. Because <laughs> I have no idea. Hang on. Let's go back to our lessons. And this is really where I think the book comes in handy. I, I love books. I love to read. So why not do it? They gave us one. P-I, what did we say it was again? P-I-E? He said it's a P-E-M. There you go. P-E-M deals with email servers. Okay, well, that would make sense. But I'm still going to read it. Oh, it can be found. Nope. Okay, so it's not in the book for some reason. It should be. Okay. I don't know. But there you go. PEM deals with mail servers. So that's the answer. Um, which of the following attacks specifically impact data availability? Ooh, I know this one. I know this one. Okay, so is it A, DDoS? B, Trojan, C, MITM, or D, Rootkit. Guys, it's got to be DDoS. Yay. All right, let's click it and see if we're right. Okay, it is. We're right. Yay. So what is a DDoS? What are you? Okay. So in topic B of chapter nine, the installing and configuring security appliances part of the book, we have a denial of service attack, and we also have a distributed DOS attacks and botnets, and a DDoS mitigator. So if you click here, you can read about a denial of service, and you can read about a 
distributed DOS or DDoS attacks and botnet. So most bandwidth directed DOS attacks are distributed. This means that the attacks are launched from multiple compromised computers. Typically an attacker will compromise one or two machines to use as handlers, masters, or herders. Jesus, it sounds like we're farming. Okay, the handlers are used to compromise hundreds of thousands or millions of zombie agent PCs with DOS tools or bots, forming a botnet to compromise a computer. The attacker must install a backdoor application that gives them access to the PC. That sounds pretty familiar. They can then use the backdoor application to install a DOS software and trigger the zombies to launch the attack at the same time. DOS attacks might be coordinated between groups of attackers. There is growing evidence that nation states are engaging in cyber warfare. And terrorist groups have also been implicated into DOS attacks on well-known companies and government institutions. So there you have it. That's the answer. Mm -hmm. Gonna get out of basics you for now. <laughs> Probably had nothing to do with that. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, so a security analyst is hardening a server with the directory services rolled and installed. The analyst must ensure LDAP traffic cannot be monitored or snipped and maintains compatibility with LDAP clients. Which of the following should the analyst implement to meet these requirements? Select two. Remember to read that part. Should the analyst generate an X.509 compliance certificate that is signed by a trusted CA? or install and configure an SSH tunnel on the LDAP server. That sounds nice. Ensure port 389 is open between the clients and the servers using the communication. Or D, ensure port 636 is open between the clients and the servers using the communication. Or remote the LDAP directory service role from the server. Let's see. Hmm. So I, I think See, I was really excited about the SSH tunnel on the LDAP server, but it doesn't sound right for a security analyst is hardening a server with the directory with service roles installed. The analyst must ensure LDAP traffic cannot be monitored or sniffed and maintains compatibility with LDAP client. Which of the following should the analyst implement to meet these requirements? So I think they need to generate an X.509 compliance certificate that is signed by a trusted CA. And then remove the LDAP directory service role from, no, you wouldn't do that. Uh, ensure port 636 is open between the clients and the servers using the communication. You see, I really thought that it would be that SSH tunnel on the LDAP server, but I'm thinking like VPN, so that doesn't make any sense. So I'm gonna go with generate next.509 compliance certificate and ensure port 636 is open. Woohoo, A and D, we're awesome, we're awesome. Let me see what else I got. <laughs> okay, which of the following threat actors is most likely to steal a company's proprietary information to gain a market edge and reduce time to market? Is it A, a competitor, B, hacktivist? I like the sound of that. C, insider, D, organized crime? And the winner is most likely to steal a company's proprietary information is a hack competitor. Okay, I was really thinking hacktivist, but it's probably just because I like the way it sounds. <laughs> so there you go. Competitor is most likely to steal information. 
A penetration tester is crawling a target website that is available to the public. Which of the following represents the actions the penetration tester is performing? Are they A, URL hijacking, B, reconnaissance, C, white box testing, escalation of privileges? So, guys, I mean, if you don't know reconnaissance, we are just, we're going to go back right here to this lesson and we're just going to go over it because, wow, it was so much talk about reconnaissance. <laughs> so, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep looking this up. Reconnaissance, going back to the book. I love the book. The book makes me happy. Read your book, guys. I love it. And it's so easy to navigate. <clears throat> okay. I don't see how people talk all day. I'm exhausted after just talking some. Okay, honestly, I can't spell. So reconnaissance is right here. So reconnaissance is not a military observation. Excuse me, Google. I would need for you to calm down. Where is reconnaissance in the book, though? It's got to be in the book. Okay, so I just felt like that would be a good time. Okay, so I'm just gonna, I mean, it should be in the book. I don't know why it's not. Somewhere in here, I try to control F and find it, but. Oh my God, it's not in the book. Why is it not in the book? Ransomware, crypto, malware, logic bombs, whatever. Reconnaissance IT. Okay, there we go. So in computer security context, reconnaissance is usually a preliminary step towards a further attack seeking to exploit the target system. So that makes perfect sense because a penetration tester is crawling a target website to do what? Reconnaissance. Reconnaissance. He's also looking for escalation of privilege. Come on. That seems, it could have been either or. But it says, which of the following represents the actions the penetration tester is performing, not what he's trying to do, because they're always trying to escalate privileges. <laughs> so anyways, for what it's worth, it's reconnaissance. So question 15, which of the following characteristics differentiate a rainbow table attack from a brute force attack? Oh my God. So I know so much about rainbow table attacks and brute force attacks, but for correct verbiage, are you kidding me? That's not in the book either. What are these people teaching? Okay. Oh my God. Why are these things not in the book? Okay, well, where are you? Dun, 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 dun. 
should probably at this point just pull up the slides and call it a day. So what's the difference between a rainbow table attack and a brute force attack? So a rainbow table attack, it's, it's like a hacking where, you know, the perpetrator tries to use a rainbow hash table to crack the passwords that's stored in that database system. A rainbow table is, it's mainly used in cryptography and it's for storing like your important data such as passwords in a database. So with that being said, it's also the implementation of like a faster crypt analytic time memory trade uh, off method developed by Dr. Felipe, 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 oh, whatever his last name is. The idea is to generate the password hash tables in advance only once and during the audit recovery process, simply look up the hash in these pre-computed tables. So if you go here and you look at this like diagram they have, it's actually pretty cool. Um, you can just Google it. It's just showing you hashes, how they find it and so forth. It's pretty neat. Um, then you have your brute force attack. And so we figured out what the rainbow attack was. So a brute force attack, it's so simple, right? So it's, it's in cryptography. The brute force attack is where the attacker is submitting like so many passwords or passphrases. And he's hoping, he's like, oh, am I guessing right? Um, so that's not so much of like a systematic attack. It's just kind of more like, you know, guessing. So that would be what the difference is for me. Um, so it says, which of the following characteristics differentiate a rainbow table attack from brute force attack? So a rainbow table attack greatly reduces compute cycles at, at attack time. Or rainbow tables must include pre-computed hashes. We have to select two. That's good to know. Okay. Rainbow table attacks do not require access to hash passwords. We know that is not true. Rainbow table attacks must be performed on the network. We know that's not true either. Rainbow at table attacks bypass maximum fail login restrictions. Uh, you know, I'm really gonna go with rainbow tables must include pre-computed has hashes because that makes sense, right? And I also, I really think that the rainbow table attacks bypass the maximum fail login restrictions. So that's the answer, but I mean, it doesn't really, you know, we're talking about rainbow tables, so we're not really needing to identify what a brute force attack is, but it's just good to know. Um, a couple more that are good to know that I saw in my CEH test was a dictionary attack, rainbow table attack, brute force. Uh, nobody really cares about brute force. That's just not something that I feel people use often. I feel like if you have to use brute force, you're just, you're just being a jerk. <laughs> like you could do something a little bit better. So which of the following best describes routine in which semicolons, dashes, quotes, and commas are removed from a stream? So we got A, error handling to protect against program exploitation, B, exception handling to protect against XSRF attacks, or input validation to protect against SQL injection, or D, padding to protect against string buffer overflows. Hmm. So the question is, which of the following best describes routine in which semicolons, dashes, quotes, and commas are removed from a string. So a string to me, when I think about a string, I think about Linux and I think about when I put strings in as a command, I think it's the same thing. I could be wrong, but let's go and find out. 
So which of the following best describes routine in which Tony Colin dashes quotes and comments are <laughs> It's gonna be A, error handling to protect against the program exploitation. Uh, you know, I don't I don't really think that has anything to do with it. Um exception handling to protect against XSRF attacks. Mm, I'm gonna go with SQL injection because that's what we used it for in Linux when we were doing hack the box. So that sounds right. Padding to protect against string buffer overflows. That just I don't, I don't think so. Let me go see. This is going to be C. Input validation to protect against SQL injections. Now, is that in the book at least? Oh my God, it's not. These people are high. Optia is on the juice. What, what is going on? Okay, question 17. So a security analyst like myself, just kidding, I'm not, but I want to be. <laughs> a security analyst wishes to increase the security of an FTP server. So currently all traffic to the FTP server is unencrypted. Oh my God. Users connecting to the FTP server <laughs> use a variety of modern FTP client software. The security analysts want to keep the same port and protocol while also still allowing unencrypted connections. Which of the following would best accomplish these goals? Hmm. So we're trying to increase the security of an FTP server. And the traffic is not encrypted. So the security analyst wants to keep the same port and protocol while also still allowing unencrypted connections, which are the following would best accomplish these goals. So would it be to require the SFTP protocol to connect to the file server? Or B, use implicit TLS on the FTP server? Or C, use explicit FTPS for connections. Or D, use SSH tunneling to encrypt the FTP traffic. I'm going to go with like D because that's just sounding right. Oh, my God. I was so wrong. What the? I mean, that makes sense, right? No, it says use explicit FTPS for connector connections. I guess I didn't get it. Okay, going on to the next one. I don't know why I didn't get that right, but at least we know. So the correct answer is use explicit FTPS for connections. I wonder if there's a spot in the book for that. FTPS. Aha, there is. Here, let's see what it says. <clears throat> okay, so SSH, FTP, and SFTP addresses the privacy and integrity issues of FTP by encrypting the authentication and data transfer between client and server. In SFTP, a secure link is created between the client and server using Secure Shell or SSH over TCP port 22. Ordinary FTP commands and data transfer can then be sent over the secure link without risk of eavesdropping or man-in-the-middle attacks. So this solution requires an SSH server that supports SFTP and SFTP client software. So another means of securing FTP is to use the connection security protocol SSL slash TLS as with SMTP. There are two means of doing this. So here's where our answer is gonna come into play. <clears throat> Hi, Gladdy, Glady, Glady. Hi. Um, welcome. Okay, so we got use explicit FTPS for connections. So the book says explicit T explicit TLS or FTPES 
uses the auth TLS command to upgrade an unsecure connection, establish server port 21 to a secure one. This protects authentication credentials. The data connection for the actual file transfers can also be encrypted using the PROT command. So there you go. That's why our answer, that's the correct answer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which of the following explains why vendors publish MD5 values when they provide software patches for their customers to download over the internet? So which of the following explains why vendors publish MD5 values when they provide software patches for their customers to download over the internet? So let's remember what MD5 is. So MD5 is like a type of hash encryption. So we go MD5, you can go, you can Google this or you can just type it in. So MD5online.org is something that my teacher does when we start. He tells us to type in a password, then he tries to crack it because he's a smarty pants. And we, we actually, put our passwords in. He has yet to decrypt mine. So, yeah. I'm just going to give myself a cheer there. I know, I know. Calm down. Calm down. I'm awesome. I know, I know. <laughs> so, md5online.org, if you want to know anything about it. So, what does MD5 mean, right? I mean, because... <laughs> There's so many things to remember. Why not throw one more in there? So MD5 is the is like an abbreviation, right? For the message digest algorithm five. It's the digestion of a message. <laughs> the MD5 algorithm is used as an encryption or fingerprint function for a file. It's often used to encrypt database passwords. MD5 is also able to generate a file thumbprint to ensure that a file is identical after a transfer, Transfer, for example. Uh, an MD5 hash is composed of 32 hexadecimal characters. So enter a word in the MD5 encryption form above. That's where the, I told you the website is. It's going to be md5online.org. And words in the database currently Oh, there's like so many. Um, go ahead and try it out and see if you can, you know, learn a little bit more. It's it's good stuff. <laughs> Willie, I don't know. Boo! Oh. <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> okay, so which of the following explains why vendors publish the MD5 file values? Well, it's a good way of encrypting. So instead of letting their customers download them over the internet. So is it A, the recipient can verify integrity of the software patch? Is it B, the recipient can verify the authenticity of the site used to download the patch? Or is it C, the recipient, the recipient can request future updates to the software using the published MD5 value? Or D, the recipient can successfully activate the new software patch? Hmm, what do you guys think it is? Why is it word? It's just worded shitty. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. It just sucks. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. What? Wow, what is this? Ready found music now. There's background music. Oh, this is awesome. No, 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 I want energetic. Rise of the King, excuse me. We might have to check this out. Go ahead, play that. 
Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. <laughs> it's awful. What? There's, oh my God, guys. There's background. What's the answer? <laughs> so, the recipient can verify the integrity of the software patch. Yes, we got it. A lot of heat on that one. <laughs> okay. So serious. Okay, let's switch it to happy moments and get back. Why is it? Oh, it's so cute. It reminds me of a commercial. Okay, we're going on commercial. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. Okay, it's done. <laughs> okay, so refer to the following code. And this is what we have. So imagine you're looking at a terminal or a command. So you can easily go to your bar down the bottom, type in command prompt if you're working on Windows, or you can go to your virtual box if you're a badass, and you can open your Control-Shift-T terminal. So refer to the following code, public class rainbow, bracket, public static void main, parenthesis, string, bracket, bracket, args, A-R-G-S, and parenthesis, object blue equal null and blue dot hash code. And there's a few other things, but it's just, you know, having to say all that out loud is awful. So I will just post that one right in here. No, 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 I don't want to say that. Oh my God, don't yell at me, computer. Copy. I wonder if I can paste it here. That would be so cool. Of course not. Going back. Okay. Okay. So, which one do you guys think? Is it page exception, pointer difference, different difference? Okay. My background music sucks. Hang on. I like the rise of the king again. That just feels like my jam right now. Who would have thought? So is it page exception or is it null pointer exception, missing null check? So it says object blue equal null. Hmm. It's either C or D. What is missing null check? What are you? Let's go find you. Where are you at? Missing null check, where are you? What? I'm just going to type in null. I'm just looking at the book right now. The book does not have it. Why does the book not have it? Is it page exception? Pointer difference? Null pointer exception? Missing null check? I don't know what null check is. And I think it's null pointer exception. Let's just see. So it says, correct answer is D, the missing null check. What? What? What is this missing null check example? We need to see this. Missing check against null. The program can differ, dereference a null pointer because it does not check the return value of a function that might return null. When a program ignores the return value from a function, they implicitly state that they are operating under one of these assumptions. Let's do command. Command line, what do you look like? Oh, look at that. Looks just like it. 
Okay, guys. Well, that's the answer. Yes, they are. Would you like to talk or are you good with your chat? Oh, forgot. Yeah, there's like plus questions. They're right here. Security plus 501. There you go. Yep. If you go to comptiatest.com, just the one. So multiple employees receive an email with a malicious attachment that begins to encrypt their hard drives and map shares on their devices when it is opened. The network and security teams perform the following actions. Shut down all no network shares. Hang on one second. Okay, so multiple employees receive an email with a malicious, malicious attachment that begins to encrypt their hard drives and mapped shares on their devices when it, it is opened. The network and security teams perform the following actions. They first shut down all network shares. Hmm. Run an email search identifying all employees who received the malicious message. Then they re-image all devices belonging to users who opened the attachment. <clears throat> Next, the teams want to re-enable the network shares. Which of the following best describes the phase of the incident response process? The IRP. Is it A, eradication, B, containment, C, recovery, or D, lessons learned? Hmm, I think it's eradication. Or it's containment. Hmm. And it's neither. It's recovery. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right, guys, that's a whole point. Let's go back to the book and look up recovery. Eradication and recovery phases. You will find that in lesson two. I mean, chap lesson two, topic B, follow incident response procedures. There are, there is a way. Okay. Eradication and recovery phases. So this is the book again. Um, I'm just going to read a, this little couple of sentences right out of here just so that I understand. So there are often no right answers to the question of what mitigation steps are appropriate to contain, eradicate, and recover from an incident. The response team may have to choose the least bad option. <laughs> While prosecution of the offenders may be important, business continuity is likely to be the team's overriding goal. Again, though, every situation is different. And if there is sufficient time, which usually time is of the essence, um, a full evaluation of the different issues should be made so that the best response can be selected. Some sample responses to instance include the following. You got investigation and escalation. The causes or, or nature of the incident might not be clear, in which case further careful investigation is warranted. You got containment, allow the attack to proceed, but ensure that valuable systems or data are not at risk. So this allows the company to collect more evidence. So making a prosecution more likely and, excuse me, and also gathering information about the way the attack was perpetrated. And then you also got a hot swap. What is a hot swap? It's a backup system. And it's brought into operation that the live system frozen to preserve evidence of the attack. Then you have prevention. I love prevention. Um, it's the countermeasures to, to end the incident, and they are taken on the live system, even though this may destroy valuable evidence. Hmm. Man, that sucks. So eradication of malware or other intrusion mechanisms and recovery from the attack will involve several steps. 
You got reconstitution of affected systems. Either remove the malicious files or tools from the affected systems or restore the systems from secure backups. So note here, if you're reinstalling from baseline template configurations, make sure that there is nothing in the baseline that allowed the incident to occur. If so, update the template before rolling it out again. Um, you can also re-audit your security controls and you can ensure that the affected parties are notified and provided with the means to remediate their own systems. For example, if customers or passwords are stolen, they should be advised to change the credentials for any other accounts where that password might have been used. Not good practice, but most people do it. So it was C, recovery. Although I feel, you know, I gotta read that one again. I'll practice it again tomorrow. We'll do this again tomorrow. I need to do it every night because I really, oh, excuse me. I really, really, really want to pass this test. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Going back to the rise of the king. <laughs> it's so awesome. It's like the security plus like, get your ass up and do your best job music. Okay. <laughs> An organization has determined if, if it can tolerate a maximum of three hours of downtime. Which of the following has been specified? Is it the RTO, the RPO, the MTBF, or the MTTR? Okay, I'm having too much fun here. Hope you guys can still hear me. <laughs> okay, so going into it. And I'm singing now. Okay, so we are going to find out why the organization has determined it can tolerate a maximum of three hours of downtime. So is it RTO, RPO, MTBF, or MTTR? So it's gonna be RTO just because I clicked the answer because I didn't wanna be wrong. But I wanna know why, so let's go find out why. Hopefully it's in the book, RTO. It is in the book. So if you look at lesson 11, topic D, implement source embedded systems design, you're going to see system on a chip, SOC, and real-time operating systems for RTOs. What are you, RTO? So it's your real-time operating systems. Let's see why that makes sense. Real-time operating. An organization has determined it can tolerate a maximum of three hours down, which the following has been specified. Real-time operating Oh my God, some of these answers, it's like, what? What? You don't think it's right? You don't think it's RTO? Oh, recovery time objective, stop it. Did I read that wrong? No, it says real-time operating system, real-time, RTO. Didn't I say RTO? RTO, did you just boo me? <laughs> okay, recovery time objective, go away. <laughs> Recovery time objective. Really? Recovery time. Why does it say real-time operating systems? Oh, RTOs. Oh, I'm reading the wrong one. I just did a control F search. That's why. Thank you for fixing that. See, what would, what would I do without you? I <laughs> think it was real-time operating. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> okay, so it is real-time objective. Recovery time objective, excuse me. It's recovery time objective. So we're just gonna go Google that because the book doesn't tell us. 
which I guess that makes sense just in itself. You really don't need, need to, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but the RTO is the targeted duration of time and the service level within which a business process must be restored after a disaster. Holy crap, that's exactly the answer. <laughs> Thanks. I'm gonna go back to my Rise of the King. <laughs> so, Oh, okay. So that's right. So an organization has determined it can tolerate a maximum of three hours of downtime, which of the following has been specified. It has got to be the recovery time objective because Google says the recovery time objective, RTO, is the targeted duration of time and a service level within which a business process must be restored after a disaster or disruption in order to avoid unacceptable consequences associated with a break in business continuing. That makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Question 995. It's been 80 years. Oh my gosh, I'm so ready to get out of get out of the house. Okay. So which of the following types of keys is found in a key escrow? Is it A, public, B, private, C, shared, D, session? I'm going to play my music while I give you a couple of seconds to think about it. Remember, the question is, which of the following types of keys is found in a key escrow? was which of the following types of keys is found in a key escrow so first off we need to ask ourselves what is a key escrow and so I've referred back to the book remember CompTIA that's the one I was telling you about I went into the table of contents and I looked up just controlled F debt and it's controlled F debt there you go just control F debt Keys such as the private key of a root CA must be subject to the highest possible technical and procedural access controls. So for such a key to be compromised, we put the confidentiality and integrity of the data processed by hundreds or thousands of systems at risk. So access to such critical encryption keys must be logged and audited and is typically subject to an M of N control. That sounds awesome. M of N control means that the N, which is the number of administrators permitted to access the system, which is M must be present for access to be granted. So you can't live with N if you don't have M. And M must be greater than one. And N must be greater than M. <laughs> Nancy and, let's go with Nancy and Macy. I like that. For example, when M equal two and N equal four, any two of the four administrators must be present. So this is like that show locking key when they give each other the key and they split up and like they can't use the keys unless the other people are there. Okay. So if you haven't seen locking key on Netflix, you really should see it. It's great. Me and the kids binge watched it in like a week. It was terrific. So 
I did say two out of four, didn't I? <laughs> okay, I was like, wait, did I, did I mess up? Okay, so another way to use the M of N control is to split a key between several storage devices, such as three USB sticks, any two of which could be used to recreate the full key. So what does escrow mean? Escrow means that something is held independently. Ooh, in terms of key management, this refers to archiving a key or keys with a third party. This is, useful, this is a useful solution for organizations that don't have the capability to store keys securely themselves, but it invests a great deal of trust in the third party. So that's an escrow. It's a third party. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the question. So which of the following types of keys is found in a key escrow? So it's got to be private, right? Because it says the process control to prevent unauthorized access. Escrow means that something is held independently. So if it's independently, it's not public. So that can't be it. So let's try private. And we're correct. And if you would like to look at Professor Messer's um, key escrow slide, uh, you could go www.professormesser.com security plus SYO 401 key escrow three. Why is that 401? I don't want to do 401. We're doing 501. Don't go there. Okay. Cool. A security analyst is reviewing the following output from an IPS. Exploit IGMP, IGAP, message overflow attempt, star star classification, attempted administrator privilege gain priority one. And then we got IGMP, TTL, 255, TOS. And this is all in a command line. So I'm going to skip this one because you guys can't see it, but I'm going to select the correct answer because the source of an IGP attack is coming from do do do. Make sure you read up on this though because when I took CEH, a lot of this lot of question about IP addresses. If you do not feel comfortable with IP addresses, get comfortable with IP addresses. What in the God's name? Are these private? God, I hope these are private. <laughs> oh, Lord. Who is this Gladys check? Hi, Gladys. I don't know who you are. Hi. Okay. Just going to keep going. I mean, it's, okay, how does this work? Okay, you shushy. All right, so that's gonna be our next one. Mm -hmm. So I got it right with B and C. I'm just gonna grab another sub. Okay, so despite having implemented password policies, users continue to set the same weak passwords and reuse old passwords. That sounds about right. Which of the following technical controls would help prevent these policy violations? And in this example, they want you to choose two. So while you think about how to, you know, to implement better password policies, um, well, if, while you think about how to do the following technical controls to prevent policy violations, I'm going to play my awesome music and give you a second. Oh my god, there's an ending? Ah! Oh. 
sleep. Well. Oh. Okay. So it was despite having implemented password policies, users continue to set the same weak passwords and reuse old passwords. Which of the following technical controls would help prevent these policy violations? Select two. So the options were password expiration or password length or C, password complexity or D, password history, E, password lockout. So. I would say that needs to be a little bit more complex. So password complexity. And then I would also make sure to look at the password history. So let's go and see if it's C and D. It sure is, congrats guys. Which of the following types of cloud infrastructures would allow several organizations with similar structures and interests to re realize the benefits of shared storage and resources? Would it be private, hybrid, public, or community? Um, I would say hybrid, but I don't think that's right. Let me go and see. Let me go and see. Mm, where are you? Where is the community cloud? I want to go to the community cloud. Okay, where is it? Oh, come on, cloud. You can do it. Cloud computing, cloud-based resources. So if you go back to the book and you look at lesson 13, then you look up uh, cloud computing. Excuse me. Mm. You're going to find cloud community. Mm. Ah, there we go. So if you go to cloud deployment models, you're going to see a breakdown of the ones that they listed. So I'm just going to read this quickly for you. In most cases, the cloud, that is the hardware and or software hosting the service, will be off-site relative to the organization's users who will require an internet link to access the cloud services. So basically, there's like 100 acres of just like all of these clouds. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's not. There's not. But like I imagine that's what it would look like. Anyways, they're like like hardware farms for you to like service, like a server off there. Okay, so there can be different ownership and access arrangements for clouds. And, <laughs> sorry, I crack myself up. I really do. So <laughs> there can be different ownership and access arrangements for clouds, which can be broadly categorized as follows. You got your public. Remember that was one of the options. Or multi-tenant hosted by a third party and shared with other subscribers. This is what many people understand by cloud computing as a shared resource. There are risks regarding performance and security. Um, have you guys ever seen um, Austin Powers when he goes laser every time there's, you know, yeah, anyways, I'm there right now. Um, so hosted private, hosted by a third party for the exclusive use of the organization. This is more secure and can guarantee a better level of performance, but is correspondingly more expensive. It's just because there's a lot of, you know, of those. Uh, private cloud infrastructure that is completely private to and owned by the organization. In this case, when you're doing a private cloud, you are going to likely be one business, um, dedicated to managing the cloud while other business units make use of it. 
With private cloud computing, organizations can exercise greater control over the privacy and security of their services. But what the hell is community? <laughs> Here we go. Community, this is where several organizations share the cost of either a hosted private or fully private cloud, or this is usually done in order to pool resources for a common concern like standardization and security policies. I feel like I could have wrapped that. Data centers flooding. That's <laughs> what it feels like it looks like, right? There you go. So the answer will be community. Which of the following types of cloud infrastructures would allow several organizations with similar structures and interests to realize the benefits of sharing shared storage and resources? That is going to be your community. Don't fight it. Just let it in. There we go. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling myself that. <laughs> A company is currently using the following configuration. IAS server with certificate-based EAP, PEAP, and MSCHAP. It's actually C-H-A-P. I just want to say chat. Unencrypted authentication via P-A-P. A security administrator like myself needs to configure <laughs> a new wireless setup with the following configurations. P-A-P authentication method, P-E-A-P, and E-A-P provide two-factor authentication. Which of the following forms of authentication are being used? Oh, my God. I don't. I can't even remember what P-A-P means. Let me go back and look in here. Going back to the book. I'm going back to my roots. I'm just going to put on my little background music so I can research this question. <laughs> it makes me want to work faster. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, so I went back to the book and I went ahead and did my control F and I found it. PAP, CHP, and MSCHP authentication. So NTLM and Carus are designed to work over a trusted local network. Several authentication protocols have been developed to work with, excuse me, remote access protocols where the connection is made over a serial link or virtual private network, VPN. Um, I really like VPNs. I use them quite often because I'm a hacker, <laughs> a wannabe hacker. <laughs> um, so we got password authentication. The password authentication protocol, um, PAP, is an unsophisticated authentication method developed as part of the TCIP, which is your point-to-point -point protocol, PPP. PPP means point-to-point -point protocol. PAP means password authentication protocol. I'm just going to say that two more times for myself. PAP password authentication protocol. It's that unsophisticated authentication method. And point-to-point -point protocol, which is your triple P, used to transfer TCIP data over a serial or dial-up connection. It relies on clear text password exchange and is therefore obsolete for the purposes of any sort of secure connection. It is defined in this nice little website right here, which I'll just, just post that. I'm doing I can. I'm getting tired. <laughs> legacy. You're a legacy. <laughs> Challenge handshake authentication protocol. Challenge Handshake Authentication Protocol. The Challenge Handshake Authentication Protocol, which is your CHAP, 
was also developed as part of the Triple P as a means of authenticating users over a remote link. It is defined in the link that I posted down there that CHOP relies on an encrypted challenge in a system called a three-way handshake. But um bum One, challenge. The server challenges the client sending randomly generated challenge message. Hold on. Okay, so we're back. So I know a three-way handshake is really important because my teacher talks about it a lot. He's always like, three-way handshake, how do you know about this? I'm always like, I'm sorry, I zoned out. But here I am learning it, and now I know what it is. So challenge, response, and verification. The handshake is repeated with a different challenge message. But first, I want to explain to you exactly what this is, so CHAP. And remember, it was also developed as a part of the PPP. And remember, the PPP is used to transfer to the TCP IP. <laughs> Seriously, I'm sorry. Like, I really want to wrap this. <laughs> it just sounds like it could be a Tupac song. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, yes, that that is, yes, my professor. There you go. My professor is always talking about, you know, a three-way handshake. So. Um, the three-way handshake, also known as the Challenge Handshake Authentication Protocol, CHAP, is developed as part of the PPP. Remember, the PPP is used to transfer TCIP data over a serial or dial-up connector. So one part, the first part of the Challenge Handshake Authentication Protocol, CHAP, is challenge. The server challenges the client, sending a randomly generated challenge mes message. Two is the response. The client responds with a hash calculated from the server challenge message and client password or other shared secret. Three, it's verification. The server performs its own hash using the password hash stored for the client. If it matches the response, then access is granted. Otherwise, the connection is dropped and lost forever. The handshake is repeated with different challenge messages. So just to give you an idea, it's periodically during the connection, though the, the transparent is transparent to the user, this guards against replay attacks, where a previous session could be captured and reused to gain access. Chat typically, oh, there's that word, typically. So typically, <clears throat> typically provides, <laughs> provides one-way authentication only. There is someone who loves that word typically and uses it quite often. So typically provides one-way authentication only. Cisco's implementation of chat, for example, allows for mutual authentication by having both called and calling routers challenge one another. This only works between two Cisco routers, however. Now, what in the hell is MS chat? So MS chat is Microsoft's first implementation of CHAP. Remember, CHAP is our challenge handshake authentication protocol. So remember, it challenges and it does the response, it does the verification. Now the challenge handshake protocol is also part of the PPP, point-to-point -point protocol, and that is used to transfer the TCP IP data. So we just worked it back up and we worked it back down. So we're gonna work it back down. PPP, transfer the TCP and the IP data over serial or dial-up connections. 
And they developed a CHAP, the Challenge Response Verification, very handshake. And remember the handshake is repeated and they do it differently so that it can be captured and reused to gain access. The MS CHAP is Microsoft's first implementation of the CHAP, but they put the MS in front of it. So there you go. Supported by the older clients, such as Windows 95. Whew, that's ancient. Where's my boo? Boo. Boo. Oh, I lost me. There you go. You're awake. I'm awake. Um, so the MS Chop is Microsoft's first implementation. And remember, an enhanced version of MS Chop V2 was developed for Windows 2000 and later. MS Chop V2 also supports mutual authentication because of the way it uses vulnerable NT hashes. MS Chap should not be deployed without the protection of a secure connection tunnel, which is what? What, what is a secure connection tunnel, you might ask? I think it is a VPN. And then so that the credentials can be passed or encrypted. So right here, we see configure VPN or dial up. Wow, this is so old. Okay, we don't need all that. So just remember, password authentication protocol, PAP. And we have point-to-point -point protocol, which is our triple P. And then we have our challenge handshake authentication protocol, CHAP, challenge response and verification. And so our question, God, we got so far away from it. A company is currently using the following configuration. IAS server with a certificate-based EAP. Oh, fuck, I didn't find out what EAP is. Oops, excuse my language, sorry. Um, EAP, where are you, EAP? Where are you? <laughs> I do what I want. There we go. Um, EAP. There you are. So what is EAP? So EAP is the ex extensible authentication protocol. EAP allows lots of different authentication methods, but many of them use a digital certificate on the server and or client machines. This allows the machines to establish a trust relationship and create a secure tunnel to transmit the user authentication credential. This sounds like the beginning of a beautiful relationship. <laughs> so your EAP, remember, allows lots of different authentication methods, but many of them use the digital certificate on the server and or the client machines. And this allows the machines to establish a trust relationship and create a secure tunnel to transmit the user authentication credential. So that's what EAP is. So the question is, IAS server with certificate-based EAP, PEAP, and MISCHAP. So that's the Microsoft, we know MSCHAP. What is PEAP? Well, I don't know. Hold on. Let me find out. Extensible authentication protocol. Yeah, but now I need to know what PEAP is. What are you, PEAP? <laughs> Got it. Protected extensible authentication. Oh, you were telling me what it was. Okay. So PEAP is the protected extensible authentication protocol. So as with EAP-TLS, an encrypted tunnel is established between the supplicant and authentication server, but PEAP only requires a server-side public key certificate. The supplicant does not require a certificate. With the server authenticated to the supplicant, user authentication can then take place through the secure tunnel, which is our VPN, <laughs> with protection against sniffing, whoa, password guessing, dictionary, and man-in-the-middle attacks. 
If you don't know about the man in the middle attacks and the dictionary, we'll go over those later on. We just need to know what PEAP is. And now we do. It's your protected, protected extensible authentication protocol. And the PEAP has a version zero, and that uses the MS chat V2 for authentication. This is by far the most popular implementation. Then you have the PEAP V1, and that's the Cisco's implementation. So PEAP is supported by Microsoft as the alternate to EAP TLS. It is simpler and cheaper to deploy, and we know that if it is cheap, it works. No, I'm just we just know it works. To deploy, then, then EAP TLS because you only need a certificate for the authentication server. So EAP Tunnel TLS is similar to the PEAP, but the difference between EAP and PEAP I'm sorry. I'm trying. It's <laughs> such a pain in the ass. Okay, the difference between EAP Tunnel TLS and Protected Extensible Authentication Protocol PEAP is that it looks like it uses the server side certificate to establish the protected tunnel through which the user's authentication credentials can be transmitted to the authentication server. And the PEAP is an encrypted tunnel and it establish, establishes the supplicate and the authentication server, but PEAP only requires a server-side public key certificate. The supplicant does not require a certificate. And this one, the EAP, I'm making this harder than it is. Let's just, let's just go away from it. <laughs> let's just go away from it. So now that we know what the hell they're asking us, <laughs> IAS server with a certificate-based EAP which is our EAP tunneled TLS. It's similar to the PAP. And remember, it works together. They work together, they're buddies. And then you have the MS CHAP, because remember in that description, MS CHAP is part of PEAP. And then we have unencrypted authentication via PAP. I forgot what PAP was. Wait, password authentication protocol. Password authentication protocol. That's right. All right, going off memory. So a security administrator needs to configure a new wireless setup, which with the following configurations, P password authentication protocol authentication method, PEAP and EAP provide two-factor authentication. They do. Which of the following forms of authentication are being used? So if she's going to configure a new wireless setup, which one do you guys think it is? Is it A, PAP, B, PEAP, um, you know, I'm just going to do this. PAP, I'm going to go back, password, authentication protocol. So the password, is it going to be our password authentication protocol? Remember, that's an unsophisticated authentication method developed as part of the TCIP. Or is it going to be PEAP? We've already talked about that. Or is it going to be MSCHAP, Microsoft Challenge Handshake? Or is it going to be PEAP, MSCHAP? Is it going to be EAP? or E-A-P-P-E-A-P, -E <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna give you a minute to think about it. Oh, that's awful to have to say out loud. Okay, so the answer is A and C. 
but why, right? Because your password authentication protocol is a necessity and your mischap, these guys work together. Remember, that's a very popular set right there. They're buddies. So moving on. An auditor wants to test the security posture of an organization by running a tool that will display the following. Gems, greater than, less than, zero, zero, unique registered work group. Which of the commands should be used? Ooh. NBT stat. You can't see it, so I'm just going to skip it because it's one of those ones you have to see. A company determines that it is prohibitively expensive to become compliant with new credit card regulations. Instead, the company decides to purchase insurance to cover the cost of any potential loss. Which of the following is the company doing? Is it A, transferring the risk, B, accepting the risk, C, avoiding the risk, or D, mitigating the risk? I think that it's all of those. But they want you to pick one. So they're transferring the risk. Because they're just purchasing insurance to cover the cost of the potential loss. Why not just fix it? Okay, um, a company is using a mobile device deployment model in which in which employees use their personal devices for work at their own discretion. Some of the problems the company is encountering include the following. There is no standardization. Employee asks for reimbursement for their devices. Employees do not replace their devices often enough to keep them running efficiently. Or the company does, I mean, and the company does not have enough control over the devices. Which of the following is a deployment model that would help the company overcome these problems? Would it be A, BYOD, B, VDI, C, COPE, or D, CYOD? Why do I feel like it's CYOD? Hmm, let's go find out what the heck they're asking us. Let's go find out. Let's go find out. I'm so curious. Just tell me. Okay. Hmm. BYOD. Bring your own drug. <laughs> Why would they do BYOD? Bring your own drugs. No, that's not the answer. But coping could. No. BDI. BDI. All right. Let's look it up. BYOD. Nope. It's not that. Can't even find it. BID. VID, mm, nope, 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 doesn't exist, can't be that one. Cope, are you in the book? Are you my mother? Nope. So the answer is going to be CYOD. So to get um, a better deployment model that would help the company overcome these problems, you would want to do a CYOD. O D C Y O D. Whatever. I, it won't. It's not in the book. But we're just gonna keep going. So we're almost done. This is gonna be our last question, you guys. Oh my gosh, I know this one. So a botnet has hit a popular website with a massive number of GRE encapsulated packets to perform a DDoS attack. News outlets discover a certain type of refrigerator was exploited and used to send outbound, outbound packets to the website that crashed. To which of the following categories does the refrigerator belong to? Would it be A, SOC? Would it be B, ICS? Would it be C, IOT? Would it be D, MFD? MFD. Let's go look up SOC. 
Lepas SOC. There you are, system on a chip SOC. So an SOC is a system on a chip. It is a design where all of these processors, controllers, and devices are provided on a single processor, die, or chip. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It is asking us about where the refrigerator belongs that was exploited. That's not it. It's got to be IoT. DDT, DIOT, DDD. Okay, guys, and that concludes our study time. Game of Thrones style. Just kidding. So, hope all you cool cats and kittens have a good night. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we'll be studying every day this week. You can catch this episode on our iTunes channel. It will upload tonight. And yes, we will continue to study. I will be hitting 1001 and 1002. I'm just currently taking Security Plus. If you guys have any questions, you can always write me at um, myitjourneys at gmail.com. You can also find me on Hack the Box at Billy Ray. There's a picture of Sailor Mercury. So I hope you guys find some time to calm yourselves and focus and take this time that we're dealing with this pandemic to, you know, self better. It is hard staying at home with your children and not going to work. I know that's very stressful, but remember you are the person who decides if you're going to be happy, if this is going to be a good experience or if this is going to be a bad experience. And I believe in each and every single one of you. And I know, I know if I can get this stuff, you can do this. Do not feel intimidated. You are capable of doing so much more. So with that being said, it's 1117 here in Florida and I will be going to bed. So good night and have a good day tomorrow.